0: Bokr Shalom Aleichem, everybody. So, uh, Rebetzin and I were having a wonderful discussion this morning of the insights of the day, talking about some just amazing things that Hashem is doing and, and piecing together for our everything. It was just a wonderful discussion, so therefore I left the house uh, quite a bit later than I normally do, and which is why I'm late here, but in the, in the spirit... Of our modern day culture, I just want to say it's not my fault. So there you go. It's not my fault. Uh, I take no uh, personal responsibility. That's. (laughs) I'm just gonna go with the times, right? We're gonna go with the uh, the spirit of the times. By the way, excuse me, I'm rolling on something here. Let me get that other way. Uh, That reminds me of a meme I saw on Facebook. It's pretty cute. It was a, a a dog and a cat. And the uh, dog was saying to the cat, the dog said, I, I, I didn't say it was your fault. Uh, what I said was, I'm going to blame you. <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought that was cute. Um, so welcome. It is uh, Lunes. It is a Monday. uh de Tello Shalom Aleichem. Good to see you. Good to see Mary this morning. Hava, welcome. Shoshana and Sue and Angela, Baruch Hashem. Of course, the Rebbe's scene. So, welcome to see everybody. It's great to be here this morning. Uh, again, I apologize for running a little bit late. Try not to do that. Uh, it's unfortunately, it just happens. We're in Parashat Toldot here this morning. And uh, looking now at the generations of uh, of Isaac. Isaac's life. Uh, Sarah has passed away, <clears throat> and now we have the life of Isaac. Abraham's days are starting to uh, wind down a little bit, and so we now have the Torah portion that begins in chapter 25 of the book of Breshet. And verse nineteen, where it says, "Ve'ele todot Yitzach," these are the generations or the offspring of uh, of Isaac, bin Avraham, the son of uh, Abraham. Avraham uh, holid et Yitzhak Abraham uh, begot Isaac, and it begins to, to tell the story here. Um, uh, in the drosh on Shabbat, where we spoke about uh the um uh the, the the virgin birth as it were, the the immaculate conception, if you will. We we discussed this, um we discussed the arguments against it, we discussed why it was, it's essential that it, ha- it must have been supernatural, we discussed the precedence in the Torah for it. But I wanted to mention something. I, I left something out that I forgot that was pretty important. I shared it with uh, with the congregation at, at, right before we started Oneg. But many of you, of course, were not at Oneg. So you didn't get to uh, hear it. But uh, in the Torah, I just want to mention there's, there's a principle uh, in Torah study called the Law of First Use. And what it means is, is that when a word is used in the Torah uh, for the first time, when we review the context in which the word is used, it gives us its foundational meaning or foundational interpretation. So quite interestingly, the first time the word Alma is used, remember from the, from the Drash on Shabbat, the word Alma means maiden. It's the word that's used in Isaiah seven fourteen, where we get the promise that the, in most translations, as I said, it, it'll say, the virgin shall give birth to a son, and you should name, you should call him na- his name, uh, Emmanuel. Um, and those, uh, who, who, uh, object to that ideology or whatever, uh, will, will like to point out that um you know what that's that's a mistranslation it, it's 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 the word is alma not betula betula means virgin alma means maiden so it's not a virgin so therefore the whole thing is uh you know he wasn't born of a virgin and that's not even the prophecy anyway and so it's just a bit bunch of nonsense right that's that's the idea I don't think I mentioned, by the way, that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Torah, the Septuagint, which, by the way, was translated, uh, uh, what, like, a couple of hundred years, 300, I forget what the exact year was, but a couple of hundred years, I think, uh, before the Mashiach was born. Okay, so, kind of hard to... uh, to say that it was uh, biased, because a lot of people have tried to say, a lot of Jewish people, uh, scholars and Jewish rabbis and so on, have tried to say, the Septuagint was just biased, well, kind of hard to be biased when it was translated, you know, three, 400 years or whatever it was, 300 years prior to the Messiah's birth. So prior to the Messiah's birth, the Septuagint actually translates that word in Greek as virgin. Why? Well, why? Why would it do that if it doesn't mean virgin? Because it does mean virgin. But anyway, let's forget that. I, what I said was, is that Betula and Alma were synonyms. And that's a, that's a pretty easy fact to figure out. All you have to do is pick up a Hebrew dictionary. It's not It's not difficult. A synonym, of course, is a word that if you use if you have a word and you replace it with a synonym, it doesn't change the meaning. It might change the nuance a little bit, but it doesn't necessarily change the meaning, and that's important. That's what a synonym is all about. Now, how do we know, pray tell, that it is absolutely a fact, Jack? Where did fact Jack come from, by the way? Who cares? It's not even important. But anyway, it's an absolute fact that it's a sentiment. How do, we, how do we know that? For sure, for sure, for sure, without going to a dictionary, because the conspiracy theorists will tell you that the dictionaries are all a plot of the Illuminati in order to confuse our language. I'm half kidding, but probably somebody thinks that. But um, the reason we know that is because of the law of first use. So it just so happens that the first time the word Alma is used in the scriptures is in higha sarah when it's talking about eliezer going to find a bride for isaac and naturally he's going to find a virgin he's not going to find he's not going to find a uh you know something of some woman of lesser i guess stature or whatever because he's trying to find a bride for, come on, the living sacrifice um, and so it just so happens that when he, when the first part of the story when it's talking about this, when it refers to Rebecca it refers to her as a Betula, as a virgin but later when he's, re, when Eliezer is telling her family, he's recounting to them the story, like this is what happened. I was on a camel, I showed up at a well, I prayed to God, she came out. When it's retelling the story, the Torah substitutes the word Alma for the word Betula. So in the first half, when he's telling the story, it's Betula, and the second half, when he's retelling the story, the word Alma is used in place of Betula. If we take the logical approach that Alma can't mean virgin, so that's, that's out, then we'd have to assume that Rivka wasn't a virgin because the Torah uses Alma when referring to her. But obviously that'd be silly because the Torah did use the term Betula when it was referring to her. So when it substitutes Betula for Alma, then what the Torah is telling us is that Alma is a synonym for Betula. It means the same thing. Which means, so when people say, the word is Alma there, not Betula, it can't be a virgin. What do you mean can't be a virgin? Because Alma was used of Rivka, who we know was a virgin. So you see, th- th- this is why it's so important to... to uh you know, deep dive into these topics. And the thing is, is that <clears throat> one might ask, well, how do people get so messed up? Because they don't know Jewish literature, and this is why it's important. By the way, what I was trying to point out with the Midrash ball, and this is relevant, I think, was well, relevant in general, but it's relevant to the life of Isaac, um, and I wanted to share another insight here about Isaac's birth or what have you, but... Um, what I was trying to share for the Midrash Rabbah and Midrash Rabbah Shir, ha, Shir HaSharim um, is that when it's talking about converts who, who well, proselytes, um, it uses the word Alma. And, and, and I, I need you to understand how, how important that is when we're talking about this topic. This topic in specific but just conversion in general, because people fundamentally misunderstand what conversion is all about. And our ministry here is very much, you know, about conversion. So f- let me give you an example. So people say to me, that's a fact Jack was in stripes. So is that where I got, is that where it comes from? Really? How funny. Anyway, I digress. Um, People have said to me, and probably said to you, they've said, why do I need to go through conversion? I'm already born again. Anybody, raise your hand out there if anybody has heard that said, or maybe you've said it. I don't need it. Why do I need to go through conversion? I'm already born again. How many of you have heard that? Raise your hand out there. Anybody? See some hands being raised. Don't be shy. Now, that statement is, well, yeah, a result of 2,000 years of just misunderstanding. But it's also a result of, um, I guess, taking a word or a phrase from Jewish from Judaism, reshaping it or redefining it, and putting it back into some other religion where it means something completely different. Anybody see the movie Princess Bride? It's kind of a cult classic. The Princess Bride, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy, it's a... It's a that's really a really a funny movie but there's some so many great lines from the princess bride but one of the one of the lines from the Spaniard the, the, the character who's the Spaniard in, in the movie the, the swordsman <clears throat> says to the bad guy cuz the bad guy keeps saying inconceivable <laughs> and the Spaniard says at one point i don't think that word means what you think it means and uh that's the that's the truth here So, um, if we go back to the first century, which is what Lapid Judaism is really all about. We want to go back to the first century. We want to go back to day one after the resurrection. And we want to learn how to live this faith of, of belief in Messiah just like Kepha did, just like Yochanon did, just like Matis Yahoo did, we we want to know how to live this life like they did. We don't want to begin three or four hundred years after the resurrection, which is what ninety nine point nine percent of all believers do they 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 start with Rome and move forward. We want to start with Jerusalem. And it's not because we're haughty and arrogant and that. We just, we just want what's real, okay? We don't want margarine. We want butter, okay? And so we want to go back and we want to, we want to learn. And so if, you're, if you were in the first century and if you were at that day one after resurrection, the term or phrase born again means converted. New creation, Converted. Newborn babe, converted. That's what it means. Later, those were separated out. You could be born again without being converted. And that's an oxymoron in Jewish thought. You cannot in Jewish thought. Can I just tell you this? No one's going to be able to prove me wrong. Not because I'm a genius or because I'm all that in a bag of, uh, you know, chips, but because it's true. No one's going to be able to prove me wrong from sources when I say that it is impossible for you to be a follower of the Messiah and not be a Jew. Noah hides aren't in the Mashiach thing. It's not true. You won't be able to find a source. So if you're born again through Mashiach, which is absolutely a fact, Jack, then that necessarily means conversion. Now, it doesn't mean that it's automatic, and, and that's a whole other topic, because people are like, hey, I'm, I believe in the Messiah, therefore I'm a Jew. That doesn't work that way. Just like, for instance, and I used this example before, just like you say, I love that woman, I want to marry her, therefore we're married. That's not how it works. There is a process, there is a ceremony and it's it's necessary for it to be public. Okay, right. Well, you, why does it need to be public? Can't you just get? Can't you and a woman just you know skulk off to the woods and get married, and then come back and tell everybody, "Voila, well, oh, we're married." It, does that work? No. It, it it requires witnesses. Right. Being public doesn't mean that three thousand people have to see it but it at least has to be acknowledged by a couple of people why is that the case it's just the case so therefore you have formal conversion you can't just willy-nilly you know cast your faith in the messiah and then automatically you're jewish that's not how it works okay but that aside let's let's set that aside from us and let's not get sidetracked on on those issues, let's just deal with the facts here. So going back to the the Alma idea in the Midrash Rabbah, this is why it's so important, because in the Midrash Rabbah, in Midrash, and Shir Hashirim Rabbah, it points out that proselytes are called Almut. That's the plural of Alma. Why is that important? Why, and how does that help us understand the concept of Almut? because if you're a convert the sages say once you've gone through conversion you're like you're like you're like a virgin you 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 you're all of your sins are wiped away you're a newborn babe you're a new creation you're born again so that's why that's how we understand that that a an alma is is somebody who is uh is pure is like the wind driven snow there's there's no one has known her so that's that's why it's important and 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 that's why um you know it, it this is why all of this is critical so uh i thought this insight was interesting about the birth of of isaac and again you know this this whole Torah, Torah portion is really about Isaac and his generations, and of course we're going to get into, uh, naturally, we're going to to be introduced to uh, Jacob and Esau and and all of that. But it says here, um, Midrash Tankuma notes... That this is this, by the way, is an insight to the birth of to the to the torpor. Excuse me, to the uh, chapter of Brashit, chapter twenty one, where it's talking about the birth of of uh, Isaac, and it says Midrash Tankuma notes that whenever you find the phrase ve'adonai, which is and Hashem or and adonai. The prepositional f- prefix vav, which means and, implies a revu, an extragetical amplification, okay, which adds something to the predicate noun. In this case, Hashem, together with the celestial court, visited uh Um, Sarah. This teaches that Hashem sat in judgment and said to the ministering angels, Is Sarah worthy of birthing a son? And they unanimously agreed that she was, and Hashem immediately sealed the decree. Another amplification is derived in our verse from the untranslated definite article Aleph Tav, which has the implied meaning with. So it said, He... Sarah, uh, excuse me, Hashem remembered Sarah. And it says that um, when Sarah conceived, that Hashem opened the wombs of many other women, and they also conceived. In fact, uh, Sarah's sister who had been barren also conceived. And so, in other words, the, the birth of the son of promise... The conception and subsequent birth of the son of promise brought about um, multiple births. So we see a precedent here that with the coming of the son of promise, that led to other supernatural births. In other words, his birth brought many more children, just like when the Mashiach was born, so to speak. He brought about the spiritual birth and rebirth of many, many others. So there's kind of a correlation here. And then it says that the Midrash notes that on the day Isaac was born, many deaf and blind people regained their hearing and their sight. So that the birth of, of Isaac brings about supernatural miracles. Blind eyes are open, deaf ears are open and um that is one of the signs that accompanied the birth of Isaac. I just think that's interesting to point out because again, once again when we're looking for um uh we're, we're looking at trying to understand the gospel message, it is critically important that we look at Torah patterns, Jewish rabbinical whatever patterns. By the way, there's another insight I came across just... Well, nothing's by happenstance, but you know how it is. You're 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 looking for something, and then all of a sudden you come across something else, and you end up chasing that rabbit for, you know, three or four hours, and then come back to your original study. But in this case, I came across another insight. It's not the first time I've read this, but it's it was in another source that it was actually in the Zohar um, that states explicitly... That the Messiah will appear in Galilee. Now, um, this is important because, to my knowledge, I am not aware. Now, some of you may, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not all knowing. Contrary to popular belief, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, but I'm really not all knowing. So, I I don't think that there's a Tanakh. Prophecy about the Mashiach appearing in Galilee. And if I'm mistaken, please advise. Which is why rabbinic literature again is so important. Because you know, this the prophecy is that the Mashiach will be of the line of David and he'll come from Bethlehem. But if you look at the story of the Mashiach, he is born in Bethlehem. He's of the line of David. What's he doing? What's he doing in uh, Galilee? What's you doing in Galilee? Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. If the Mashiach's mission is to end up being crucified on Har Moriah, which is the Temple Mount, why, why is he in Galilee? You say, well, he was being chased by Herod, and he went down to Egypt, and after Herod died, after Herod died, he went to uh, Nazareth in Galilee. Why? Everything Hashem does is for a reason. Why? Because in the ancient Midrashim, and in the holy Zohar, it says that the Mashiach will appear in Galilee. Now, ladies and gentlemen, of all the so-called messiahs that we know from relative modern days and before, not one of them has appeared in Galilee. Not one. But if you don't study Jewish literature, if you're not in a, in a, in a, in a congregation or, or a movement, a sect of Judaism like Lapid Judaism, and you're not being taught Jewish literature, you wouldn't know that. The prophecy is that the Mashiach will appear in Galilee, and why Galilee? Because it says in the Zohar, because the Mashiach will be Mashiach ben Yosef, therefore he must appear in the territory of Yosef. The territory of Yosef is the upper Galilee. Which is why the Mashiach was there, which is the why his headquarters was there in Capernaum, which is why his ministry was all in Galilee, and he only came to Jerusalem on occasions. Why, why, why? Why is this the case? Because the Mashiach's first appearance, which comes from Judaism, by the way, the two messiahs, the first appearance, second appearance, that's all Jewish, that's all Jewish Judaism teaches. I did not get a chance to share from you, share to you rather, or with you I should say, and the Midrash Shabbat, Shir HaSharim, I had it marked, but you know, only got 45 minutes or so on Shabbat. Um, beyond that, y'all start to doze off and go to sleep and start playing tic-tac-toe and stuff like that, and I've got to cut it and shut it down. But in there is a beautiful statement that says, that the Mashiach will be like a gazelle. He'll appear and then reappear. Excuse me, he'll appear, disappear, and reappear. And it uses the example of Moshe, where Moshe was there, and then he went to the wilderness, and he came back. So the whole concept of the two Messiahs... um, comes from this, right? So it says that the Mashiach will have to appear in Galilee. He must. It's not an option. He must. Why? Which, I, my contention is, unless somebody proves me wrong, which is fine, my contention is, is that prophecy can only be found in the rabbinic literature. And it and it says he'll appear in Galilee and he'll be the Mashiach ben Yosef, which means, well, who's Mashiach ben Yosef? Mashiach ben Yosef is the Mashiach who's supposed to come and die for the sins of Israel. Which in the Midrash, I think it's the Yemenite Midrash, I have it over there. I had to I had to look up and verify my, my uh, reference. But it says in there that the sages will go out to him in Galilee... And they will ask him, again, this is the Jewish Midrash, it's not Christian, Hasve Shalom. we don't use Christian sources here, no offense, we just don't use them. Nothing I say comes from Christian sources, did you know that? I need you to understand that. as just, just, just as an aside, nothing I tell you comes from Christian sources or Messianic sources. I think that's important for you to know. But I digress. So anyway, in the Yemenite Midrash, it says that the sages should go out to him and they'll ask him, are you the Mashiach? In Galilee, by the way. And they'll say, he'll say, yes, I am. And they will hate him. So now there's a prophecy in our own literature that says that when the Mashiach arrives, the real Mashiach, we will hate him. You say, well, how is that possible? It was That's the way it was with the first appearance of Moses. When Moses appeared, we hated him. Who are you to tell us to stop fighting? You're the one who, who killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. We're not going to like the Mashiach. Everybody thinks we're going to like him. No, we hated him when he first showed up. So, you know, this is all part of the... Um, Part of the prophecy. By the way, real quick, just real quick. Um, Some of you have heard of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is today, and has been forever, uh, been considered like one of the most relevant, most powerful, mo- whatever, rabbis in history. He was a, you know, first century rabbi. By the way, he's a convert, which I think is important. Rabbi Akiva didn't become a Torah, uh, uh, began to study Torah until he was like 40 years old. So all of you who think you had to grow up Jewish, forget it. But anyway, he's a great, and he he had a lot of great sayings, and he's a great rabbi and all, you know, all that, I Read the teachings of Akiva and listen to him and all this kind of stuff. But here's the caveat. Rabbi Akiva was the one who declared that Bar Kokhba was Mashiach. It was the Bar Kokhba rebellion that led to the, um, the, the exile in which we're currently in. Okay? So Bar Kokhba uh, rose up and and led a war against Rome, and uh, Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, again, Rabbi Akiva, big, big head honcho rabbi in that day, still is today, made a public declaration that Bar Kokhba was Mashiach. Well... Bar Kokpo, his rebellion failed, his army was crushed, and he was killed on the battlefield. The Romans subsequently tortured and martyred Rabbi Kiva to death, and there is tradition, you know, say, or writings rather, that he was saying the Shema and so on, as he was being tortured to death, it was bru- it was tor- terrible. But here's my point, and this is what I need you to understand: it's no slide against Rabbi Akiva. This is for us to understand and learn and be edified. Rabbi Akiva never recanted. I once I, I had lunch in Dallas about probably five years ago now with a Orthodox rabbi. I consider him a friend colleague and a uh, very learned man. And over the course of lunch we had a we talked about a great many things but I asked him I said are you aware I'm not but I'm asking you are you aware of any source anywhere that in which rabbi akiva renounced uh Renounce Bar Kokhba. Did Rabbi Akiva ever say, I made a mistake? He obviously was the Mashiach, and so on. Even while he was being tortured to death. And uh, the rabbi said, I can't think of any. I can't either. Okay, why is that important? After Bar Kokhba was killed on the battlefield, how come Rabbi Akiva didn't go, you know, I was wrong. He's still going to die because the Romans are going to kill him because he incited a rebellion. But he could have at least told his Tamadim, I was wrong. But he didn't. He never said it. Not even why he's dying. Why? Anybody want to guess why? I'll give you a few seconds here. Who, who can tell me why? Who can, who can, who can tell me why this is, this is important? Come on, class. Come on. Somebody's got to say it. I'm waiting. I'm going to wait a few more seconds here before I tell you. Come on. Come on. Somebody type it out. Why is it important that Rabbi Akiva never recanted? Hello? Anybody? No? Okay. I'm going to tell you. The reason he didn't recant is because he knew the Mashiach was supposed to come and die. So it was no big deal that he died on the battlefield because he assumed that he would be resurrected very soon and would conquer Rome and bring about the Messianic Age. Even though he saw with his own eyes that Barcopa was dead on the battlefield, he still went to his death believing in him. Obviously, every Jew in the world agrees that Bar Kokhba was not the Mashiach. Therefore, therefore, Rabbi Akiva was wrong about him. Okay? But, even still, Everybody today in Judaism still trusts the words of Akiva, honors Rabbi Akiva, and supports his sayings and so on as valid and true. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that whatsoever. However they would say the same thing about us. They would say that because our Messiah did not fulfill all of the requisite things that the Mashiach is supposed to do, they would say, we're wrong. And they discount everything that we say, everything that Kepha said, everything that Yeshua said. But do you see, I don't want to use the word hypocrisy because I think that's too strong, but do you see the dichotomy? Akiva believed in his whole heart, even unto his death, that the man who was laying on the field with a spear at his chest was the Messiah. And it didn't bother him because Bar didn't fulfill anything that the Mashiach's supposed to do. Didn't bother Rabbi Kiva. Why? Because the Messiah is supposed to die. He's dying ultimately for our sins, really. Okay. So I wanted you to see that, because I've never heard anybody ever mention that before, ever. That this is a conclusion I came to. Because I want you to think about these things more critically therefore when somebody says to you and it's inevitably going to happen they're going to say to you but you're 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 yeshua you they'll say jesus because there's there and I'll, I'll get into the psychologically psychology of that at another time why do jews refuse to say the name yeshua even when you say you don't believe in jesus you believe in yeshua they'll continue to use the name jesus why do they do that somebody asked me that so i'm going to Remind you to remind me someday to tell you the psychology behind that. But, let's not get into that now. But when they're talking to you about this and they say, but your guy didn't fulfill any, which isn't true, but he didn't fulfill any of the um, requirements of the Messiah as far as bringing about world peace or whatever. Well, first of all, you could get into them a long discussion about Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David and how that all works. But you could push that aside and just say, well, what about Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva believed in Bar Kokba, went to his death believing in him, and Bar Kokba didn't fulfill any of those. And yet Rabbi Akiva still felt like he was the Messiah. So if it didn't prevent him from believing in the Mashiach, why is it preventing you or I? It's just something to think about. Because if they are familiar at all with rabbinic literature, then that should put a question mark in their mind. These are the things uh, that we like to bring out Lapid Judaism. Um, so there's that. We, we kind of this is more of a cursory introduction to told, don't in a roundabout way because we're talking about um, continuing to talk about Isaac and his the pattern that God is trying to show us with respect to Messiah, and tomorrow, God willing, we will get deeper into some insights. We'll cover some things, probably from the first and second and as well as the third. We'll look at some insight points, to, to told, maybe some, some things that will be interesting and significant to us as we're trying to understand our faith, walk it out, and put our pants on every day and be good, uh, decent human beings. Until then, have a great and wonderful day. It's going to be a good, listen, this week, I'm telling you, it's going to be a good week going to be a week of good news it's going to be a week of good fortune listen if you've not subscribed to this channel what's wrong with you i'm just kidding subscribe to us seriously we want you to be a part of it and uh we want to make sure that you get all the teachings and be sure and like the video share it with your friends share the drosh with your friends um and i because I, I think some of these messages that that come out are very important to help people kind of reorientate And so um, hopefully it'll be a blessing. So Shalom Aleichem, everybody. Look forward to seeing you in the morning. Until then, have a great, wonderful, and amazing day.